Welcome to the Disrupt Your Career podcast, brought to you by Claire Harbour and Antoine Tirant. We're passionate about helping everyone find fulfillment in their work life. We believe that big, messy, uncharted career changes are inevitable. And it's up to you to decide. Will you take control and disrupt? Or allow yourself to be disrupted? We wrote the book about it. And now we share here our conversations with other thinkers in this crucial area. Settle down and get ready to listen to this dose of wisdom. So this time on Disrupt Your Career podcast, we're welcoming Andrew Bartlow of Series B Consulting, who has participated in more than 11 M&A transactions, six significant scale-ups, as well as multiple IPOs, bankruptcies, and successful private equity sponsor exits. He has directly advised dozens of C-level executives, interacted regularly with public company board members, supported employee populations of 5,000 plus, built HR and recruitment functions from scratch, led teams with 20 plus people professionals, and learned from the very best during his formative years at Pepsi and General Electric. Andrew, you're most welcome. Thank you, Claire. Great to be with you. Good. So let's start as we always do with your career journey. You have a long history of people roles in financial institutions and FMCG, with a shift towards venture capital about five years ago, and you're now running your own advisory firms for leadership consulting and scale-ups. You've published a book, Scaling for Success, People Priorities for High-Growth Organizations. Tell us how this extraordinary career unfolded. Was it by design or through serendipity? And what have been the key highlights? I think there's a bit of serendipity or kismet in everyone's career journey. Unlike many people that find themselves in the human resources profession, I didn't quite fall into it. I went to school for this. I had internships for this. And I've been doing human resources roles for 25 years, right out of undergrad and and grad school. What drew you to the studies, first of all? It's always interesting to identify what kind of people actually choose to study this stuff. Yeah, strange people like me, I suppose. I talked in depth about this on, uh, with Robin Zander a few weeks ago. That conversation was on video, so I really need to work on the hair and, uh, and wardrobe next time I'm on video. The formative experiences that I had uh, in central Illinois, Midwest, few hours outside Chicago. I was in high school in the early 90s, late 80s, and um, major, the single dominant employer in the area was Dow Component Caterpillar, the heavy equipment manufacturer. And they were organized by the United Auto Workers Union. The company and the union had a three-year labor strike during those formative years. And so everybody's parents either worked for the company or had relatives or were on the picket line. It was the front page of the Peoria Journal Star every day for three years. And so worker management relations had a hot, bright spot on my radar screen. And, you know, frankly, I thought I wanted to be the negotiator. I wanted to be the spokesperson for the company and in helping to sort out these complex issues. So I actually got accepted to law school later in life, chose not to go to Cornell. Sorry, Cornell. I found a master's program at uh, my home state university 
which turned out to be arguably the top human resources master's program in the world at University of Illinois, believe it or not, and got a full ride to attend. So there, there are some other family connections there around why I ended up pivoting from law to uh, the master's degree. But boy, it's been a heck of a ride. And I've been trying to, you know, frankly, come to grips a bit with what it means to be in human resources for the past 25, 30 years, almost 30. So many people outside the profession, and heck, even inside the profession, misunderstand what the work is. And, you know, we can certainly talk in more detail about those misconceptions. Well, I mean, shall we move into at least a brief allusion to this meaning that you have gleaned in your reflection? <laughs> um, and then we can go into other parts as we hit the other subjects. But I'd love just for the audience to get the gems, the fruits of your reflection. Well, uh, it's my reflection. So everyone will have their own take on the work and the profession. I found that people outside the function often assume you know, HR is the complaint department or the employee relations group that makes people happy, or we exist to advocate for employees. And if you take care of employees, then they will take care of the organization and everything will be fine. And people will tell me, uh, well, they'll ask, well, what do you do for a living? So oh, I, I work in human resources. Oh, people must love you or people <laughs> must hate you. That must be really hard. And the answer is it's neither. It's neither. I've approached the work from a professional perspective as more of a management consultant. So what are the processes and practices that will help the organization be successful? And if you take care of the organization, it can take care of its people. And so I've tended to have more of a business-centric mindset, you know, not in any way to harm the workers, but you know, more about the job exists to help the organization be successful. And you want to take care of your people as part of that, maintaining a great reputation, be a good place to work, et cetera. And so, you know, I find that a lot of my work today ends up being educating other HR professionals about the mindset of how to approach the work. I started an executive development program. We haven't mentioned it yet. People Leader Accelerator for human resources leaders to help them be more influential, more strategic. What does it really mean to have a seat at the table? What are you doing? And, you know, frankly, a lot of HR leaders burn out because they're trying to do everything and please everyone. And you, you just frankly have to prioritize a little bit better and link your activities to what's most important to your organization rather than whatever bright, shiny objects we read about on Apple News or HBR or on podcasts. And you sometimes have to do that in the face also of a CEO who sees a bright, shiny object about HR or people and tells in unequivocal terms the HR leader to go off and play with that bright and shiny object instead of seeking alignment. But anyway, um, let's put that aside for now. I'd love to go way back and dig down deep into the time that you started in your sort of academy organizations, but also going through what lessons have you learned working in the people role in such a diversity of organizations? You're right. I've worked across many different industries, far more than financial services and tech. 
and sizes from you know the Fortune 100 to quite a few places less than 100 people. You know, one big realization is no one else inside the organization really understands what the HR work is. The HR leader needs to lead. So you can be an order taker and provide great service and salute and go bring the burger that you know someone's asking for, or you can be a menu designer and help the leaders that you're interacting with understand what you can do for them. And so that's a major realization. If you just ask what to do, you'll only get so far. So take better control, take more ownership over your own priorities. I love the food metaphors. They're brilliant. <laughs> it's always food. It's always food. <laughs> this was a hard lesson learned is that it's frankly less about work, less about the email that you send or the program that you design or the PowerPoint that you create. And it's more about the influence that you can have in an organization. I, I found myself working harder, arguably smarter, doing better work than most people around me. But when I was heads down, focused on doing the work and can't my work just speak for itself, I didn't get as far as when I put more time and energy into building relationships, into storytelling, into linking the things that I'm working on with things that are important to other people. And so I think the lesson learned there is particularly in our work, which is about people and people management. You have to raise your head up out of the technical, tactical delivery and very consciously connect with your stakeholders and do the storytelling. And yeah, I, I wanted to say advocate for yourself, but I think we do a lot of empty advocacy in HR. Like, you know, people must come first and I must have a seat at the table and I have to have this title. It's not positional. It's prioritization and it's connecting with the right things and ensuring that people know that you are working on the right things. Those are two big takeaways. Those are brilliant. And I must say the second one in particular strikes me as being a beautiful description of the fundamental difference between doing and being. And when you are being a leader, that's where you have impact. And that's where you don't need to worry about what advocacy looks like. For example, it's simply there as part of the way you be every day. Let's talk about your transition from being a corporate employee, which you did for quite a long time, to being a consultant with a portfolio of activities. We love huge, massive, disruptive changes like this, but they're difficult. Tell us about how it went. Oh, I think we're all still trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, hopefully I'm Peter Pan and I never quite grow up. Hmm. I don't think I ever really wanted to have a specific title, but I wanted to achieve something. I wanted to be impactful. I wanted to make a difference somehow. And, and we talked about the seeds or the roots of why I got into HR was, you know, front page of the Peoria Journal Star. And that impacted the company and the community and the you know surrounding you know, entire economic climate of the Midwest and central Illinois. And so I had a lot of success inside organizations as a W-2 employee and was uh, my last in-house job at what is now Invitation Homes. It's a $25 billion market cap publicly traded 
real estate tech company. And I was the chief HR officer, head of the function as the company went public a couple of times. This is pre-SPAC, but there were some uh, interesting reverse mergers and private equity sponsors in and out. Anyway, it was complicated and very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. But boy, I was working 80 hours a week. Mm. I was living here in Northern California and commuting to Arizona on a Monday and home on a Friday. And then we went through another merger to become Invitation Homes and combined with a company based out of Dallas. And so my spouse uh, and little girls at the time were not interested in moving. So I was looking to a five-hour flight with a two-hour time change and doing the same thing. So I pulled my parachute. All my equity was able to vest. I had a great severance package, which was wonderful. And so I walked away from a Fortune 500 level public company officer role, but had some financial flexibility. And so I was trying to figure out what the heck do I do with myself? Like, if I don't have to work 80 hours a week, if I don't have to travel five days a week, what am I going to do? I was a really terrible stay-at-home dad for about six months. I started work on my book. You mentioned it already, Scaling for Success. But I just found I was not fulfilled. You know, the tip of the Maslow's hierarchy, the self-actualization was not there. And the book was, you know, it's a slow labor. It's quite a process, especially with an academic publisher. You don't just sit down and write 200 pages. No. So I, I was trying to figure out what could I do to be useful? What could I do to feel some gratification out of being useful to someone? And I went through an executive coaching program. I thought, hey, maybe I could coach others. But the interesting thing about executive coaching programs, and I went through Berkeley, Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute, is that you do a lot of work on yourself first before you uh, help others with their own work. And so I was kind of sifting through, what do I want to get out of this? And what does that look like? And I ended up deciding, I'm not really a coach. I don't want to coach. I'd like to mentor. I'd like to support and advise other HR leaders, people that do what I do. So rather than create the space and ask big, penetrating questions where other people can, you know, self-discover and, you know, but much respect to the coaches that do that, what I have to offer is 25 years of HR work at companies of all shapes and sizes and industries and geos. And I think I can help, I know I can help other HR leaders navigate their careers maybe a little bit more gracefully than I navigated mine along the way. That executive coaching program helped me crystallize a focus, helped me figure out uh, how I could be useful to the world. And I found that uh, it's really worked out. It's really worked out for many HR leaders that I've worked with through People Leader Accelerator, have created some content that is reaching more and more people. And I'm still doing some HR work. I caught on with a private equity firm. I spend maybe 50% of my time with uh, Altamont Capital Partners. It's a mid-market PE firm that controls about 25 different organizations, mostly U.S.-based. And I get to do all the most fun work as an advisor and consultant, the ODOE work, helping CEOs navigate their relationship with the board, doing CEO 360s, and mentoring the HR leaders. So... Yeah, I think I can strongly recommend some introspection 
an executive coaching program is good, not just to learn a skill, but to learn more about yourself. Absolutely. And that focus and clarity really helped me out. So it sounds as though really the exploration, the time, the slowing down in order to create space for exploration, and then the savvy use of the educational path that you took really led to something that now makes perfect sense for you. It does. There are a couple of tools that uh, I found particularly helpful. I've actually used them a couple of times with others. The river, there's a river visualization of you're like, what are your options? How wide or narrow is the river at different points in your life and where are you at today? IDEO, the design thinking company talks about, you know, the customer journey and peaks and valleys. And so I charted that for myself, like where have I felt at the pinnacle and where have I felt in the deep trench? and what was happening at those times, an Ikigai diagram. Absolutely. I mean, we use that in our work um, very much. So it's terribly simple, but it's not easy. Yeah, great tools for people to figure out what works for them. Absolutely. Let's go back then to um, early stage career professionals. You know, you made some interesting choices at the beginning, influenced by all kinds of different contexts and circumstances. You've talked now about different tools and and ways of introspecting on what one might do to earn a living and to create some sort of value in one's career life. But what advice would you give to those who are just looking to start out their careers? I give um, all credit to John Beresford, who was my manager at Pepsi, my first job out of grad school. He went on to be CHRO of Pepsi Bottling Group, he actually became president of JD Power, you know, so stepped out of HR and entered a business leader role. You know, so here I am, this very, very young, very early career, ambitious, hardworking. I'd like to think I was smart, junior person working for him. And uh, he could see the ambition just dripping off of me. And he gave me advice that I've passed along many times, actually gave the commencement speech at University of Illinois a few years ago, and I referenced him and this advice there. A career is a marathon. It's a long process. If we're lucky, so a marathon is you know 26.2 miles. If we're lucky, a career is 30 years. So let's chunk it out a bit. The first 10 years, do whatever you can to develop high quality experience work at the organizations that are renowned as best in the world of what you do. I did that with the academy organizations of Pepsi and GE. Work wherever you need to work. I was in Cleveland and Detroit and some other like not super attractive areas, but get the highest quality experience that you can. Don't worry about whether you make five grand more or less or whatever, because that first 10 years of foundational experience will allow you to step up into the next 10 years of your journey. And in that next 10 years, think of that as wealth creation, as building your financial safety net, because there are organizations out there, you will have progressed in your career where they'll pay you well for that super high quality foundational experience. And so then if you, and you're continuing to build experience in that second 10 years as well, but you might have some more choices. And so if you do those first two steps well, super high quality foundational experience, start to accumulate some wealth, 
It's the Jerry Maguire moment. Then the third 10 years, all the choices are yours. You can shoot the moon and try to become head of the function at a very large organization. You can uh, potentially retire early and you know, go swimming every day. You can hang a single shingle like I did and do only the work that you want to do. But bottom line is you can shorten your journey a bit if you make early choices that give you those options. Otherwise, you're just continuing to ping pong around searching for your personal purpose. Uh, Cal Newport, the author, talks a lot about career journey. He wrote, so good they can't ignore you. And I, I really have bought into this idea of delayed gratification, of making short-term decisions with long-term aims in mind. And so that's it's worked out well for me. And I try to share that, especially with people early in their careers that are often searching and seeking and trying to find something that speaks to them. Dan Pink talks about this as well with human motivation 3.0. It's the three elements. But uh, the point is that if you do something long enough, autonomy, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. If you do something long enough to get really good at it, you'll get more freedom, independence, and flexibility. You'll feel that achievement and you'll build purpose over time. So anyway, lo long story, but I think the message of delayed gratification is valuable for people that are early in their careers. Let's talk properly then about your book, Scaling for Success. Um, you've talked a little bit about your motivation to write it, but I'd love to know more. And tell us about the kinds of needs that you're trying to address and about your process, which you said was painful or at least slow. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, writing a book is like eating an elephant. You just can't do it at one sitting, that's for sure. And I think if I were ever to try to endeavor to do something like that again, I would go to a cabin in the woods and have no contact with the outside world, you know, the Walt Whitman approach. Because just generating the ideas you, is so easy to get distracted by everything else. Uh, so it was a year and a half writing process. And then the academic publisher process was another year on top of that. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to make money writing books, first, don't do it. Yeah. Oh, if you yeah. want to have speed to market, <laughs> self-publish. Yep. But for me, I wanted the credibility of being associated with a top-tier institution. So Columbia University Press was our publisher. And I'm just really honored that they were willing to connect me with their brand. Um, and we're, we're actually up for three different management book of the year awards. Congratulations. That's super impressive on every front. I mean, we're nominated, so we haven't won anything. We'll, we'll see how it turns out. To be on the nomination list is a great start, isn't it? So the book is very much a how-to manual targeted more at smaller businesses, not necessarily small, but smaller, which fills an important gap. You give a lot of advice and guidance with all kinds of valuable frameworks. But if you were to boil down the main ideas of the book, what would those be? We do want you to buy the book, but nevertheless, we would love you to condense it for us. Yes, please. Audiobook, Kindle version, in paper as well. Yeah, I boil it down to, let's start with number one, have a plan. Many small, rapidly changing, rapidly growing businesses use that change as an excuse for chaos. We can't plan because we don't want to get it wrong or things are changing too rapidly. 
I don't recall who said it, but if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So have a simple, straightforward, doesn't need to be a McKinsey 100-page you know, slide deck, but be clear about what you're trying to accomplish. Providing that level of clarity and focus for an organization is one of the larger challenges early on. That's number one, have a plan. Number two is context over content. So what I mean by that is don't just try to lift and shift or keep up with the Joneses or chase your bright, shiny objects or whatever other little tagline we want to use. The, the idea is that what worked for somebody else won't necessarily work for you. You mentioned earlier CEOs coming up with these bright ideas and then we are forced to chase after them. I remember the Monday when my CEO founder had met with Tony Shea from Zappos and he wanted to implement holacracy at my organization. And I used a lot of political capital to talk him out of it because it did not make sense for our business. Yeah. In a call center environment where everybody's under one roof in Las Vegas and you can easily measure everything that everybody's doing, a super flat organization can make sense. Sure. In our organization, NFW. Don't just apply best practices, thoughtfully consider your own context. That idea steered the entire approach to the book. Like everybody wants the checklist. Everybody wants the playbook. What should we do at series B? What should we do when we're at 127 people? The answer is it depends. And so rather than try to give people generic advice, we very thoughtfully provided frameworks and concepts that you should be able to apply practically to your organization. That's absolutely key. And I think that links to the third central idea, and that's the last, the third of three, is work on the right things. And so that has to do with stakeholder analysis, with, uh, I, I use the Eisenhower matrix to help prioritize often, but boy, you can move 30 things an inch or three things a mile. And your organization is generally much, much better off if you're aligned and people know what the priority is and you're not stepping on each other. I use racy matrices to help with decision clarity and role and responsibility clarity. So have a plan, consider your own context and work on the right things. And boy, those are not just human resources, people, function concepts. And I've, I've got a lot of feedback from people in sales and marketing and tech that, wow, these can be applied elsewhere. And yeah, 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 it can be. I feel like HR should be carrying the torch, though. We should be leading the way on these concepts as the internal management consultant. And, you know, too often we're not fully filling that role. And so that's what I would hope people take away from the book. Brilliant. That's really inspiring. Now, let's just dig into one of the themes in the people's themes that you cover, the whole idea of talent acquisition, rewards, and culture. For our listeners who are specifically looking for help in their own careers, what would you say are some of the best practice examples around career and talent management? Uh, I don't know if I specifically mentioned this in the book, this idea of a career ladder versus a career lattice. So moving straight up, in a vertical way 
versus moving side to side and diagonal and kind of jumping tracks from time to time. With some of the people that I've mentored, instead of a ladder, I've used the image of a pyramid. And so the broader your base, Mm -hmm. the higher you can go. So that doesn't mean do public accounting, then filmmaking, then, you know, uh, waterfront restoration. That means do different aspects of the work. So I'm in HR. I've had a head of talent management and a talent acquisition role. I've had a head of comp benefits and total rewards role. I've been a business partner many times in my career. And, And that's what got me my first CHRO job was I had done all the component elements of the job. And so the natural next step was lead the whole function. And so broader base, higher ascent would be something to think about. Fantastic. What would you like to see organizations doing even better when it comes to talent and career management? And most importantly, do you have any great examples that you can name or not? If you just can only describe, that's fine too, of companies doing particularly well in this respect. Where I tend to see companies doing well tends to be more mature, established organizations. And there's a good reason for that, right? They, they're in less of an environment of change and they have more stability in what the jobs look like, what that career ladder or lattice could be. Where I see lots of organizations trip over themselves is trying to do too much too soon. So I see organizations at 50 people trying to do compensation leveling and job banding and getting very, very specific with you know, software engineer one through eight and what are the anchors of each of those and what are the requisite skills. And I think that is well-intentioned, busy work that is distracting ultimately to an organization because they are changing and evolving more rapidly than any of that sort of internal activity could provide. So the best advice I think I could provide is think through what you're doing when and why. So don't just do career leveling and lunch and learns and you know internal training because people are asking for it. Be clear about what you're trying to accomplish. And so those organizations that do it well, they are intentional about what they're trying to achieve. And they might even measure something other than satisfaction or completion. Even at a smallish company, I ran uh, Washington Mutual. Rest in peace. It's now part of J.P. Morgan Chase. I led a piece of their mortgage business, uh, HR for them. And we ran a manager skills training program. And the idea was you have a bunch of inside salespeople. Um, How do you help improve their productivity? And there were thousands of these inside salespeople answering the phone for mortgage refis. Not a lot of refis today with interest rates going up. The general thought was, hey, you can try to touch each and every one of these inside salespeople, or you can touch their managers and get a lot more leverage on that. So uh, we ran this manager training program. And rather than just doing it because it makes sense or it's the right thing to do, or you peanut butter approach, you know, everybody gets the same thing at the same time. We actually ran a control group. We did it for three regions out of eight, and we measured the difference. 
So what are the things that you're doing? What's the measurable impact of that? And it wasn't a giant organization, but we saw some real outcome benefits from it. And that got us funding, got us credibility, wrote some case studies, got, you know, if we would have just done the whole thing for the whole organization, who knows what the impact would have been. But instead, it got cemented into the organization because we're able to prove, you know, maybe not uh, perfectly scientifically. And we only did it for four months, but that was enough to get the support and momentum for the organization. Fantastic. Good old ROI. I actually just had Jack and Patty Phillips on the podcast um, interviewing just a couple of days ago. So if things work out as we planned, their episode will be before yours. So there'll be a little echo going between the two. Let's get into fantasy or fancifulness. What advice would you want to give to your 18-year-old self if you could go back to him? Oh, my. At 18, I was uh, at University of Illinois, sophomore there. I'd say chill out a little bit. (laughs) I'd remind myself that what I talked about today and learned in my mid-20s, which was, this is a journey. Try to enjoy the ride. I was very focused on hard work and being a good student and had three part-time jobs during school. Enjoy the ride a little bit more. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. And if you had a magic wand and you could change just one thing about the world of work, what would it be? I think that would connect to the work that I'm doing now. It would be HR leaders more fully step into the role of management consultants. There's so much potential in our function, in the talent that exists in it. If we direct our energies and our intellect in the right areas, uh, we can make a massive difference. That's wonderful. The idea that an HR leader is a is a management consultant is like the ultimately elevated level of an HRBP, right? They're not just business partners, they're management consultants, leadership consultants, indeed. That's beautiful. Thank you. Andrew, I think we're just about done. I know that you and I could go on for hours and hours, and I hope we'll get a chance to chat a little bit more after we press the stop button, but it's been an absolute pleasure having you on here today. You've brought all kinds of ideas for people to be thinking about. I've very much enjoyed it, and I just want to thank you. Well, thank you, Claire. Really, really appreciate the thoughtful, in-depth questions. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed hearing from this month's guest as much as we did. Do go and check out our work on disrupt-your-career.com and come back soon. Thank you.